Yep, Pastor Todd, Joel, that's what you've always called me, Pastor Todd, right? <laughs> Anyways, good morning, church. It's uh, good to see you, good to be with you uh, this morning, to be able to open God's Word with you. I had a great time in the lobby this morning with the Coopman family and with Minister Doug Downey, just some great stuff going on there, and, um, and uh, just excited that we can be together again as the church in this way. Uh, as Joel already said, we're going to be getting into a brand new series in the book of Habakkuk uh, this morning and for the next four weeks. And um, so if you, if you haven't already turned there, get there right now in your electronic Bible or your uh, paper Bible, whatever you have. And uh, we're going to get started here. And I want to I want to start by like just acknowledging some things that I believe we're all really good at. Gen- generally speaking, I would say that we're all really good at these things. I'm going to give you three of them. We're really, really good at self-centeredness. We're, we're really good at having a sense of personal entitlement. And we're really good at complaint when things don't go our way. You thought I was going to give you three really good things that we do well, but in fact, uh, you know that I often set us up this way. I think we're really good at these three things, self-centeredness, a sense of personal entitlement, and complaint when things do not go our way. But in this new series, over the next four weeks, we're going to tear all of that down. I don't think any of us really wants to be like that, but we often are. And in, and in place of those things, we're, we're going to put what the word of God would really want us to have, what God would really want us to have, in, instead of self-centeredness, of course, that we would be Christ-centered. Instead, instead of a sense of personal entitlement, we would have this sense of awe of God in our lives. And uh, really in, sense, in, a, in, in place of complaint in our lives, that we would have a surrender Uh, to what God is doing in the world, what God is doing in our lives. And so in order to get there, we're going to look at this Old Testament book of Habakkuk. He was a prophet in Israel in the 7th, late 7th century, early 6th century uh, before Christ, B.C. Uh, He was a contemporary, you know, some of these other prophets. He was a contemporary of Jeremiah, a contemporary of Nahum and Zephaniah. In terms of what was going on in the world at the time, if you're just kind of placing where this all lands, it's, it's kind of in the transition period between two superpowers. The Assyrians, with their capital of Nineveh, was, were really the ones in charge at this point. But it was transitioning over to a new superpower, a Babylon. And that's not just an interesting fact. It actually plays into what we're going to see in the book today. And in the midst of uh, what were very, very difficult days, the prophet cries out and he says something. He asks a question that I think a lot of us ask in the midst of our own difficulties. Where is God? Where is God? When we're in the midst of our own pain and our own suffering, whether it's individual or in our family, or whether it's something more global, We ask the question, where is God and why isn't he intervening in our world? And in the opening verses, the prophet complains, as we so often do. The prophet complains and the Lord replies with an answer, at least in this first message, with an answer that we may not be fully prepared for. And what we're going to learn is this, and it's in your notes. When I complain about the crises that I face, 
God responds with a call to us to accept his often misunderstood ways. That's what we're going to look at. Here's um, the first 11 verses of this uh, book. I'll read this and uh, we'll pray and then we'll get started on that. Habakkuk 1.1, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or, or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed. Justice never goes forth, for the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence. All their faces forward, they gather captives like sand. At kings, they scoff, and at rulers, they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. Let's pray together. Father, we are uh, privileged to have your word, privileged to have it in our hands right now, to hear it with our ears. And Father, we need a word from you constantly. Father, we're assaulted on all sides by messaging that would want to pull us away from you. Father, we're pulled and tugged by our own emotions by the circumstances of life, by false teachers. And so, God, I pray that you would speak clearly into our hearts, into our minds right now. God, that you would take your word and penetrate deep into our very thoughts and transform us today by the power of your Holy Spirit in each one of us. God, these things we pray in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. All right, here we go. This is, this is what we're going after. When I complain about the crises I face, God responds with a call to accept his often misunderstood ways. And we're going to start with this. There's no denying the crises that are in our lives. There's no denying what we go through. There's no denying that life is hard. In fact, the prophet starts here. We're going to jump down to verses 3 and 4 and come back to 1 and 2 in just a moment. But the prophet in these, first, uh, in these verses 3 and 4 asks God, first of all, a series of questions. Then he makes a series of statements that point out the way their society at the time, late 7th century, early 6th century, Assyrian rule, 
in part of the in part of the world and Babylonians rising in power. But he's pointing out how their society in light of all the circumstances had had devolved into something in Israel had devolved into something very different than what God intended for Israel. And in in fact, as we go through these, it's not going to be hard to see how these six crises that we see are very much true of our day today. First of all, he asks, you might want to write these down. First of all, he asks, why do you make me see iniquity? Why do I have to look at all this sin? You could write down, if you're you're listing these six um, crises, you could write down moral decay. Why do we have to look at all this sin? Sin's everywhere. At the time, people were not interested in God's moral law. They were not interested in being holy or righteous. They were not interested in following the ways of God. Sin was rampant and, and repentance was absent. You can see how that applies today. All manner of sin today is allowable and celebrated. Uh, sexual mores are non-existent. Our country continues to liberal, liberal, liberalize on certain things like substance abuse and prostitution. Things have turned bad morally in so many ways. We all know that. Don't need to spend a lot of time on it because we understand it. We get it. Moral decay. Secondly, he says this, why do you idly look at wrong? You could write down here social injustice. You think about it, widows, orphans, the poor, sojourners, what the Bible calls sojourners or, or immigrants to our country. Uh, all of these were pushed to the margins and were neglected. And yet God had said in his law, in the Mosaic law, it was so important that in order to manifest the love of God that he wanted this nation to have, that they would care for people who lived on the margins, people who were vulnerable. But they weren't doing that anymore. Again, we have all the examples right in front of us today. The reason why we have a movement called Black Lives Matter is because we have done such a poor job at achieving equality of the races today. Because people still feel marginalized. Because there is still a sense of entitlement among the majority population. We still have so far to go to see true racial equality. We have homelessness. We have food insecurity. We have people in the city who are hungry. That's the reality for too many. Why, God, are you, as, as Habakkuk says, why are you idly looking at wrong? Why is this happening? He says, then destruction and violence are before me. There's rampant crime. Israel was an unstable place. By the end of the exile, several decades later, she was essentially governed by warlords. Safety, personal safety, family safety was elusive. I wouldn't necessarily go down the road to saying that crime is rampant today. We're certainly not making progress on crime. Certain crimes are falling by the way for sure, but other crimes are ramping up. We uh, shouldn't at all feel safe online if we haven't taken proper protections. People are still having a mind to do criminal activity, to steal from you. There are parts of every major city, including Toronto, which we think is so clean and so wonderful and so safe. And there are parts of Toronto we shouldn't go to. Parts that are not safe to live in. 
Here's a fourth one. He says, strife and contention arise. There's relational breakdown. Marriage and the family we know are under siege. Contention on social media divides people who would otherwise be allies and friends. We just get so angry with one another over small things. We make comments on things that we have no business talking about. There's so much strife. There's so much contention. Or here's a fifth one. He says in verse four, so the law, the law's paralyzed. Justice never goes forth, he said. The government's not doing anything about it. In, in fact, we could put it this way. Government and law enforcement are finding themselves to be handcuffed. You just write down government failure then and now. Government is not the answer. Education programs fall short. They don't go for the heart, but for the, just the mind, and it's not enough. We descend further and further into lawlessness, into anarchy. Governments are at a loss for what to do. A sixth one, the final one here, he says, for wickedness, the wicked, for the wicked surround the righteous. The righteous, there's still believers around. There's still people who believe in God and have faith and are praying to him and seeking to serve him. But the wicked have surrounded them. So justice goes forth, pervert it, he says. In other words, you could write this down. Uh, there's religious marginalization. Believers, in fact, are considered relics of the past with nothing to offer society, nothing to offer a progressive society. Church is a quaint ritual for old people. You see this all the time. I saw it again this week. The Canadian media, news media, report on the church and efforts to bring the church back to in-person worship. And who do they report on? They report on Mainline denominations whose churches are largely empty, United and Roman Catholic churches, largely empty. But they report on them as if that's the only church in Canada. And anytime they do talk about evangelicals, which would be the brand that we would kind of identify with, they go to the United States and to the south of the United States and they find some crazy pastor in some mega church who's doing silly things. And, and that becomes the stand-in for evangelicals. Well, that's not us. That guy doesn't represent me. His church doesn't represent our church. But in Canadian society, we've been pushed to the margins. We don't matter. We don't count. What was the same for Habakkuk? And so look at that list again. We're just setting it up here. We're saying something about the crises that we face. There's no denying them. Moral decay, social injustice, rampant crime, relational breakdown, government failure, and religious marginalization. That is the context that we live in. That's what Habakkuk wants God to intervene in. And essentially what he's doing is he's setting up a prayer for, at least in his heart, he wants national revival. He wants God to sweep through again for the word of God to once again make an impact in this world and in the lives of many. 
And for us as Christians, we believe the word of God. We believe this book. It's why we're spending this time right now in his book to hear from God. We believe the word of God. We've pledged to follow Jesus Christ. And we know that the world's ills, every one of them, all of these crises are rooted in one basic fact that this world is marred by sin and that we ourselves, every one of us are sinners. And so that while we can lift our voices and we can act concerning some social injustice, for example, to pick one thing out of the list, we can act concerning some social injustice that's happening in the world. We have to recognize as Christians, the answer is not a political one. The world is not going to be changed by activism, by protest, but only by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Each and every soul individually coming to terms with the message of Christ. With the fact that he alone can save. He alone can save. We want what Habakkuk wanted. We want changed lives. We want a transformed society. There's no denying the crises we face. But notice this second now in your notes. But I don't help the matter when all I do is complain to God about it. Back to verses 1 and 2, I said we'd come back here. The oracle, verse 1, the oracle, an oracle is a burden or a message, okay? The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw, verse 2, O Lord, how long, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, by violence, he means a, this is what Carl Amerding said, a flagrant violation of moral law that results in us hurting each other. A flagrant violation of moral law that results in us hurting one another. We cry to you violence and you will not save. I mean, I've prayed prayers like that prayer. How long, God, do we have to go through this? How long before you help us solve this problem? How long before we're on the other side of it? There's actually three aspects to his complaint here. First, Habakkuk says to God, your timing is off. Imagine saying this to God. We do. Hey, God, your timing's off. How long shall I cry? Now, raise your hand right now where you are. Raise your hand right now if you would say, if you would say that when you pray to God, you want your request to be answered now. Raise your hand. In fact, you're impressed that Amazon can deliver the next day, but you're, you want something even better than that. You, God, you want God to outdo Amazon. You want the fulfillment of your order immediately. We don't want next day. We want it now. And any time that God fails to come through in our timing, here's what happens. We get impatient with him. We start to bargain and negotiate with him. Or we simply become angry and we check out on him. We say to God, 
in our complaint, your timing is off. Then we also say um, your help is non-existent. I mean, the cry here from Habakkuk is for help because God hasn't come through, according to Habakkuk's experience and what he's saying, God hasn't come through and they're experiencing all these crisis, crises in their lives. So he's crying out for help. God, you're not coming through. I'm still crying for help. Now, it isn't wrong to cry out for help. This is part of lament, and this book of Habakkuk fits with that whole type of literature in the Old Testament, this lament. It's not wrong to cry out for help, to ask for deliverance, to seek healing, to find respite from God. God wants us to come to him in our despair and to find hope and salvation in him, but to do so not with complaint that he is failing, but with faith that he, in fact, will help us. The trap is that we can fall into believing several wrong things about the Lord. If we feel like he's delaying in his response or that he's not really helping us, we can believe, first of all, that he doesn't love or care about us. And I've heard so many people say this. I just believe that God doesn't love me. He doesn't care about me. Or we believe in, in this deistic kind of way that he's distant and uninvolved. He kind of made the creation and wound it up, and now he's off doing something else. Or thirdly, that he doesn't actually have the power to help. He's impotent, and all of those are faulty, bad theology. But again, this comes out of our complaint. Your timing is off. Your help is non-existent, God. And then thirdly, this, your listening skills are lacking. Habakkuk says, and you will not hear. I mean, he's being so bold here before God and, and even a bit rude. The Lord is being so patient and gracious to him. He's leaning in to listen. There's a wonderful assurance for us right in that. God's still going to listen. He's listening to us. He's listening to our complaints. He's listening to us plead with him. He's often listening to us lash out in anger. Our accusations and assumptions about him are met with mercy and grace. God uh, certainly is so long-suffering with us, listening to our threats. And yet we ourselves find ourselves drifting away from him and abandoning him while he just presses effort closer to us. So it doesn't help when I complain about God. And, and so his appeal to me in light of this, God hears Habakkuk's complaint, and then God appeals back to Habakkuk. It's also a threefold response. God's response to Habakkuk is, again, appeal, not condemnation. He says, first of all, be amazed, be amazed at what I'm doing. Look what he says, look, Habakkuk, I need you to look, look around you and see the thing that I'm doing. Look among the nations, verse 5. Look and see, wonder, and be astounded. 
Now, the challenge was that Habakkuk had put blinders on and then focused down on just what was going on in his own personal suffering and what was going on in Israel, and he was missing the much larger picture of what God was seeking to do in the world and in history. And this is where, right off the top, we talked about how we're so good at self-centeredness, and this is part of the challenge that we all face. Our self-centeredness betrays us on this point because all we can see is how a thing affects us, how it affects me. And contrary to what you may have been led to believe, I'm certain that most of your mothers said this to you at some point while you were being raised. Contrary to what you may have been led to believe, life is not about you. Life is not about you. But I'm so guilty of this. I mean, let me just have this honest moment of of bad theology with you. I want to confess this. What I want, I'm going to lay out something I believe. What I want is, is for God to work in this world according to his will, which is going to include some bad things happening. Okay? That's part of the theology. It's part of what I believe. I believe that I want God to work in this world according to his will, but that's going to include some bad things happening. So far, so good. That all sounds perfectly biblical. But, but, None of that should ever touch me or else I'm going to be out on God. I'm going to be mad at him for what he's doing. I'm going to be questioning his every move. I mean, God's saying to Habakkuk here, and he's saying to me also, that's not the way it works. What I need from you, loved one, what I need from you, follower, is I need you to be in, here's the word in the text, wonder. Which, by the way, that word implies that there's some things that I'm not going to fully understand. I'm, I'm in wonder about them. And I'm to be astounded. I'm, I'm, I'm so surprised. I'm amazed at what I'm seeing. I'm noticing the sovereignty of God and his power and how it's all folding together through history. God says that's not the way it works. You need to be in wonder and astounded at everything I'm doing to repair the mess that you human beings have made of the earth. Even if you don't understand it, God says. Stand back, look at it all, be in awe of my power, be amazed by what I'm doing. And the reality is, in the midst of of what's going on in the world today, God is far from absent. Where is God in the pandemic, we ask? Where is God in the midst of all the racial tensions that are gripping the world right now? Right here. Right here. Right here. In the midst of it. Intervening in a broken world. Shaking things up. Would would you at least be able to stand back and say God is shaking things up? 
necessarily so. He's exposing our vulnerabilities. We, we've, at least in my lifetime, 56 years, I've never felt more vulnerable than I do now. God's providing opportunities in the midst of this, though, because we're supposed to be dependent on him. He's providing opportunities for his sons and his daughters, for his church to carry out the mission at a time when people are actually asking real questions and seeking answers. Contrary to what you have been led to believe, life is not about you. Get your eyes off of yourself. Take a look around. Be amazed, be astounded, be surprised, be in wonder of what God is doing. But it goes deeper still. God says, be amazed for sure. But then he says, beyond being amazed, be aware of what I'm doing. Like think deeply about the things that are happening. Seek understanding. I mean, since the beginning of this pandemic, 14 weeks now, we've been doing live stream since the beginning of this, when the lockdown hit, began to ask uh, a certain question, I think is a lot of pastors are asking this, a lot of churches, a lot of Christians are asking this question. What does God have for us in this? What needs to change? He's trying to get our attention. I don't want to miss the thing that he might be saying. I want to be aware of what God is doing. I want to embrace whatever he's doing in the world and in our lives and in our church. He says to Habakkuk here in verse 5, the latter part of verse 5 now, I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Now, we look at a verse like that, we just yank that out of the context. We slap it onto a mug or we put it on a t-shirt or, or, or we create some nice little wall art for our room or we post it on our social media. I'm doing a work in your days. You wouldn't believe it. It's such an awesome, amazing work. Well, the problem is that the verse doesn't actually have that happy, positive Christian art kind of tone to it. It's not the stuff of coffee mugs and t-shirts. When God says to Habakkuk, you're not going to believe it. That's my paraphrase. He means that he's doing what you and I would never think to do. What we would never choose to do, even if it were an option. Something that we're going to be blown away by. Something that doesn't even make sense to us. It's so outside the box. This is precisely what happened, by the way, at the incarnation of Jesus. So outside the box. I'm going to do something in your day that if I told you what I was doing, you're not even going to believe it. And a whole generation of people, while Jesus was walking on planet Earth, while he was walking around the very nation that was waiting for him to come, making his way through Jerusalem and Judah and Samaria and, and, and Samaria and Galilee and walking all around and teaching people and they just weren't getting it. He was doing what you and I would never think or choose to do. 
He did things in his incarnation and in coming to earth, events. He, he performed things. He, he held events. He spoke words that people simply could not grasp, even though Jesus explicitly told them the details. For centuries, people had prayed, believers had prayed for Messiah to come. And when he come as an infant, the leaders rejected him because they could not understand him coming in that way. He lived in Nazareth, in Galilee, and the people didn't get it. He hung out with people on the margins. He, he loved to spend time with tax collectors and prostitutes and fishermen and shepherds and lepers and Samaritans and women and children, and they didn't get it. He allowed himself to be crucified. And they didn't get it. Proof, as Dr. Martin Lord Jones says, proof that God often allows things to get worse before they get better. God often allows things to get worse before they get better. Because they didn't get it. Though it was all prophesied, though he himself told them it was going to play out this way, they didn't get it. He rose rose from the grave, and even the people that were closest to him had trouble believing it. They didn't get it. Even the disciples didn't get it. Be aware of what God is doing. It's going to be an extraordinary thing. I mean, we can even get to a place where we might be able to cognitively in our brains understand them, but it's the heart transfer that we struggle with. We say we believe a thing until it hits us personally, and we recognize it's not actually in our heart. A lot of our theology is rock solid until it applies to us, until it's happening right in front of us. But why are we surprised? I mean, I just think about Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. I know verses that are familiar to, to most of us. For my, here's what he says. For my thoughts, God says this through the prophet Isaiah. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways. Why, why would we think that human beings have the answers? Why would we think that our ways work? We have all these thousands of years of earth history, of human history to look back on, and almost nothing that we've tried has worked really well. Disease still gets us. We're ruining the environment. Can't seem to stop wars from continuing to happen. The world today is on the verge of economic collapse again. There's no racial harmony. These are basics. These are things that God, all of these things, God laid out for Moses, for the children of Israel as the ideal for a a theocracy, a people who would be governed by God. And we've just made such a mess of it. 
For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Why would you think that you could even grasp and understand my plans? So be aware that nothing is outside of God's control, that everything happens according to his plan, that everything happens, everything happens according to his plan. And so, and so we put an eye, put that eye on everything that's going on in the world today. Put that eye on the pandemic and rather thinking about, oh, I'm just so confused with how this affects me. For us to to open our eyes and to look at the bigger picture and ask the question, God, what are you doing in the world? I want to know that. And I want to be a part of it. Put that eye on the pandemic. Put that eye on George Floyd. I'm talking to Christians right now, okay? We have the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to put the eye of the gospel on the racial tensions that are gripping this continent. I'm talking to Christians who need to look to the word of God for what they know to be true. I'm talking to us to say, stop feeding yourself from social media. Stop listening to politicians. Stop listening to celebrities. Stop listening to radical activists and listen to the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no other solution. Put your eye on that. Put that eye on your life and on the challenges you're facing so that we can all step back and say, I don't quite get it. I don't know how God is working in the world today, but I believe that he is on the move. I believe that he's working and I'm going to follow him. In their Old Testament introduction, Dillard and Longman said this, human opinion about righteousness and wrong lacks the capacity to evaluate God's actions in history. We lack the capacity. Human opinion's not going to get us there. But those who are truly righteous must live in faithful confidence that God will keep his promises. Amen. Amen to that. So be aware. Be aware. And that leads us to God saying uh, this final thing, be accepting of what I'm doing. Uh, we, need to be, um, we need to be amazed, aware, and accepting of what God is doing. And this is where the whole thing takes this shocking turn. And when you understand uh, the historical context and um, uh, the Israeli situation at the time, when this book is written, these oracles are spoken, uh, the nation had been divided. After King Solomon's reign, the the nation of Israel that was beautifully united under Solomon divides into a north and south. There's a rebellion and and a severing that takes place. In 722 BC, as a result of continued rebellion against God, the Assyrian Empire invaded the northern kingdom, carried much of the population into exile. Judah, the southern kingdom, was spared that fate, but the Assyrians were literally right there on the doorstep, right on the border, 
influencing so many things. The specter of invasion was always looming as they were only marginally, Judah was only marginally less rebellious than Israel. But they too were spiraling down. This is when Habakkuk cries out and God says, I'm going to answer. I mean, essentially, again, the prayer that Habakkuk is, is praying is a prayer for revival. God, I want Judah to get it. I want them to turn away from these crises and the decisions they're making, the sinfulness. I want them to turn back to God. And God, for you to spare and protect your people. God says, I'm, I'm going to answer I'm going to sweep away the Assyrians. I'm going to get Judah's attention concerning all of this sin that they've given themselves to. I'm going to do it, God says. But God's solution for the oppression of the Assyrians and the the sinfulness of his people, God's solution for that was to send in the Babylonians. Who many... Uh, by the way, considered to be worse. Verses 6 through 11 uh, describe them. I won't take the time to read all of this again, but verse 6, I'm, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that's the Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. He calls them dread and fearsome. They have these swift horses and all these amazing metaphors to describe what they were like. They come for violence, verse 9, their faces forward. They're so determined and so strong, no one's going to stand in front of them. In fact, they laugh at kings, verse 10. They laugh at rulers. They, laugh. they look at a fortress and they laugh and they go, we're just going to build a ramp and go over the wall. It says they, verse 11, they sweep by like the wind. This is blitzkrieg. And in fact, they're so determined that their God is actually their own pride and their own strength. It's the very thing they believe in. And it's made them unstoppable. God describes these oppressors, these Babylonians, Chaldeans, uh, in great, vivid, horrifying detail. And they are his answer to prayer. The solution for the Assyrians is the Babylonians. How could this be? In fact, in a more contemporary example of this, by more contemporary, I mean 20th century. This is Poland in World War II, 1939, invaded by Nazi Germany. And as those troops came in, they occupied Poland and they were ruthless to the Polish people for six years. And I'm sure many Polish people were praying to God throughout that entire time. God, rescue us, save us from these Nazis. And in history, we know, you go back to 1945, the rescuers of the Polish people were the Soviet communists. That hardly seems like a win to any of us who read history. It's a bit of a pick your poison. Or, or let's bring it to an even more contemporary, more, more accessible illustration for all of us. This is, this is, we have this virus that's spreading across the world and the World Health Organization has declared it a pandemic. And the way that we're going to solve the virus problem is we're going to tell everyone to stay home and we're going to shut down our economies and put them into a coma and we're going to risk uh, all the uh, ills that come with isolation and we're going to shut down our hospitals uh, for anything other than treating this 
so that people are no longer going to emergency rooms for things they should be going for. They're no longer getting cancer treatments. They're no longer getting elective surgeries that are going to help them with their lives. People are now uh, falling into depression. We have rising cases of, of, um, of uh, domestic abuse. We have people thinking about suicide. The solution for the virus seems worse than the virus itself. I'm going to answer your prayer about the Assyrians by sending in the Babylonians. But was God working? Well, we can look back on the 26, 2700 years since that time. We can look back and say, absolutely, God was working. He was bringing it all to a point. He was accomplishing his will. But now can we say the same thing again? Can we ask the same question and answer it in the same way? Is God working? Yes. Though I can't quite see how right now. I know it's heading to a point. You see, God simply doesn't work in the way that we think he ought to. And our part must be to trust him and to lean into him. Here's what Richard Patterson said in his commentary. Such a great God can be trusted to accomplish his purposes with all nations and peoples. Therefore, though calamity must come, we must wait patiently and confidently. We must also abide in the Lord's strength for his sovereign and perfect will to be effected. We have to accept what God is doing. Though you may not fully understand it, I may not fully understand why he's doing it the way that he is. We need to accept it and surrender to it, surrender to him. When I complain about the crises I face, God responds with a call to accept his often misunderstood ways. God's appealing to us to accept his ways. Will you do that? Well, let's wrap up this uh, time together this morning. And let me say, this is a four-part series. And all four of these messages are so important in this short book of Habakkuk. In order for you to get the full picture of what God is saying here, you need to hang in and catch each one of these, whether you catch them live on Sunday morning in the live stream or you watch them uh, later on demand. You really need to take in all four messages. We only have a partial picture with this first message preached. There's more to come, another complaint by Habakkuk, another response by God, and then a final response by the prophet that stands in for the response we should all have. It's all essential information to lock down a complete understanding of all of this. So I'm really appealing to you to take in the whole series and share this with others. And perhaps this week it would be helpful uh, for you to take the book of Habakkuk and read through it a couple of times. It's only going to take you a few minutes to get through it and to make notes in your Bible uh, concerning all of this. Read the book of Habakkuk and in your sermon notes right at the end and at hbc.info, you're also going to see a link uh, to the Bible Project's overview. It's a seven, eight minute uh, video, a graphic video that's going to Uh, give you a great overview for the book of Habakkuk. Take the time, seven or eight minutes, to watch that overview. I know it's going to be super helpful for kind of encapsulizing all of this um, uh, material from the book of Habakkuk. So God bless you. Let me pray for us as we close up our time together uh, this morning. 
Father, you are good uh, to us. Uh, Father, you're patient. Father, what I've talked about today from your word is such a struggle for all of us because we do default into just thinking about ourselves. God, more than anything else, we want uh, to take every, as the Apostle Paul wrote, to take every thought captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ, to take every thought captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. Help us to do that, Father, with the word that we've just heard today. Continue to bless your church. Continue to bless your followers, Father, as we look for opportunities to live for you and to serve you and to love you in this community. Thank you for hearing this prayer. Thank you for being a good and gracious God. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.